During these four weeks of Advent, our sermon series is built on a major theme of the Advent season, which is the theme of waiting. In fact, the theme of waiting, waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord to answer our cry for help, waiting on the Lord to act with power for our deliverance from our enemies, waiting on the Lord to reveal His glory and power. This theme of waiting runs throughout the Bible. From the third chapter of Genesis through the last chapter of the book of the Revelation, the last chapter of the Bible. And therefore, if we are people of the book, if we are true believers in Christ, then by definition, we are people who are waiting, waiting on the Lord. Now, just now, I mentioned in passing Genesis 3. There we have recorded that moment at which the waiting began there in the Garden of Eden. After Adam had sinned against God by falling into the temptation of Satan, who was embodied in the serpent, when God came to judge that disobedience, He first of all cursed the serpent and decreed the serpent's ultimate destruction. The Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's when the waiting began. God's judgment upon the serpent, recorded in Genesis 3.15. Make a note of this and you can pass a theological exam. God's judgment upon the serpent in Genesis 3.15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Is the first announcement, it is the first promise by God of the Messiah, the Savior born of woman, who would be born into this cursed world to destroy the devil. But this announcement of the coming Savior born of woman, please note, has within it a dark note, an ominous foreboding, which is that when the promised Savior would bruise the head of the serpent to destroy him, the serpent would bruise the Savior's heel. When the promised Savior would come and destroy the devil in that very act, he, the Savior, would himself suffer a mortal wound. Make a note, Genesis 3.15 is the first proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And understand that that's where and when the waiting began. 
Over the last two weeks, Pastor Jonathan has lifted up this gospel theme of waiting. First of all, waiting in humility. Last Sunday, waiting in holiness. And today our theme is waiting in hope. The scripture reading comes from the book of Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. Let us pray for God's illumination of the Holy Spirit to be upon us. Our Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, for the testimony of your great and saving work in the infallible word of Holy Scripture. Grant us the grace of your Spirit. Open our minds, we pray. Turn on the light, the light of your truth. Open our hearts. Warm it with your love, a love for you, and help us to receive your word and to believe it through Jesus Christ our Lord and to the glory of his name. Amen. Let us hear the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the prophet Isaiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. To his name be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. I realize that I gave you a rather lengthy introduction to this sermon, but I, I did that in order to give you a backdrop, or as it were, a palette against which you might more clearly see the prophetic vision given to us in Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. Now, this passage has been made familiar or more popularly known in the general public through its depiction in various works of art uh, by Edward Hicks, works of art known as the Peaceable Kingdom. And just as there are works of art portraying the nativity or the visit of the Magi, so also this passage is often seen portrayed in art in, in the uh, 
Advent or Christmas time, on Christmas cards or other artistic displays. In it, you can see the depiction of the wolf dwelling with the lamb, the leopard and the goat, the calf and the lion and the little child who shall lead them. Unfortunately, many people today may have no idea uh, what the subject of this painting is, why it's on a Christmas card, where it came from, or, or what it's about. But, but now you know that it's an artistic portrayal of this passage from Isaiah 11. It is an artistic portrayal of the vision of the peaceable kingdom, which is the kingdom of the Messiah. Christ's peaceable kingdom, the restoration of Eden, for which we are waiting, waiting in hope. Waiting in hope. Well, you know that Pastor Jonathan and I often define a concept or a word by what it is not. You're familiar with that? Two weeks ago, Pastor Jonathan defined waiting in the biblical sense, uh, saying that it is not waiting in the sense of inactivity, doing nothing, twiddling our thumbs, or wasting time in frustration, as in being stranded in an airport, or flipping pages through a magazine in a doctor's office. No, biblical spiritual waiting on the Lord is a matter of living actively, faithfully, obediently, as we wait on the Lord to act, to answer, to guide, and to provide. Now, in the same way, we need to define the word hope biblically, first of all, by what it is not. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. We use the word hope frequently in common speech to express our personal wishes, our personal desires for a preferred outcome. We do this all the time. For example, last Saturday, I officiated my cousin's wedding in Jackson, Mississippi. That's the reason that I was away last Sunday. Now, for good, for very, very good and understandable reasons, The Christian wedding ceremony, for good reasons, took place at a wedding venue in Jackson outdoors. Now, you're getting this, right? An outdoor wedding in Jackson, Mississippi, on December the 7th? You're there, right? 
the bride and the groom and their parents and the preacher and everyone else were hoping that it would not rain. And by the way, even though most of the people there were alums of Ole Miss, most everyone, and we did have access to a television set at that venue, most people were hoping that LSU would win the SEC championship. And that was relevant to the point in the moment because the ceremony took place during halftime. But you see, this is how we most commonly use the word hope. I hope it doesn't rain. I hope we win. That's okay. That's okay. But, but what we are really saying is, oh, I wish it wouldn't rain. I'm wishing for a win. I would prefer that it not rain. I would prefer that the Tigers win. Okay, that's what we really mean most often when we use the word hope in common speech. But brothers and sisters, that is not what the Bible means when it speaks to us about real hope. The hope that is grounded in and founded upon the faithfulness of God, the infallibility of God's Word, and the promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you just think about it. The way in which we commonly, frequently use the word hope, when we really mean wish, it automatically implies, I wish it I wish it wouldn't rain. It automatically implies uncertainty. No guarantee. No assurance. Everything's up for grabs. If that's how you think, if that's what you think, if that's how you feel about God, your relationship with God your life now, and your life for all eternity, if you're just wishing with uncertainty, and no guarantee, and no assurance, so that you feel that your soul really is up for grabs, then today is your day to hear and to believe the good news of great joy that unto you has been born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the one whom the Almighty Creator promised when He cursed the serpent. And through Faith in Him, the Savior born of woman. All who place their trust in Him and look to Him for their salvation have a living hope, a true and infallible hope that will not, cannot disappoint.
And upon him you may freely, fully, confidently set your hope for everlasting life. Not as a wish. Not as a preferred possibility. But as a guaranteed and a fully assured reality. So waiting in hope as believers in Christ, is a matter of actively, faithfully, obediently living now with confidence in the assurance of the guaranteed future reality promised in God's infallible Word, promised in the gospel of Christ, sealed in His blood, assured by His resurrection. The guaranteed outcome of everlasting life in His peaceable kingdom, which is yet to be fully revealed in the present. But it is guaranteed and it is assured, and therefore by faith in Christ we can begin now to live our lives actively waiting in hope, in the light of the guaranteed future reality. And inasmuch as we are able by the power of the Holy Spirit We are therefore to live our lives now on earth as citizens of His peaceable kingdom. More more on that in a minute, but do you see the first main point? That is, do you see what biblical hope is? It's not wishing for a preferred outcome in an uncertain future. Biblical hope, Christian hope, the hope of the gospel is confidence and assurance that what God has promised in the gospel of Jesus Christ for the eternal future is a guaranteed reality which will infallibly come to pass and will be an experienced reality for all those who believe His Word. So let's take a look now more closely at one picture of that guaranteed future reality in the light of which we are called to live. Let's look at Isaiah 11. Now, the first thing is, as always, we need to look at this passage in its overall context. The overall context of this passage is important because if we overlook it, then we might just think about the peaceable kingdom. We might just think about that painting. We see it on a Christmas card. And, you know, we might just say, oh, that's so sweet. Or an unbeliever might look at it and say, well, that's nonsense. So you see, the point of the, of the context here is that we don't get swept away by, by sweet sentimentality or secular cynicism. Because what you need to know is that this beautiful portrayal of the peaceable kingdom in Isaiah 11, this this magnificent vision of Christ's rule and reign over all creation, because that that is what this is. This is the kingdom that He brings. This is the, the result and the outworking of Christ's 
exercise of his kingship over all creation. The, the glorious vision of Eden restored, paradise regained, the breathtaking, mind-boggling depiction of eternal salvation, eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth in which God's kingdom has fully come and his will is completely done on earth as it is in heaven. This thrilling vision of the hope of glory occurs in the context, the overall context of God's judgment upon this sinful world. We need to see it in the context. It's not just a nice idea. It's the gospel over against the curse which fell upon all creation. Now, this is how the Old Testament prophets often spoke. First a word of judgment, then a word of salvation. First a word of justice, then a prophecy of grace. First a prophecy of doom, and then a prophecy of hope. Now, this illustrates the point. In order for anyone really to receive and to believe the gospel, the good news of great joy, which will be for all the people, the only, one, the only way anyone ever really receives that with personal, heartfelt faith is, is that each one of us must be brought to an understanding and a personal conviction of our sin, and therefore of our desperate, helpless, hopeless condition under the judgment of the Almighty. Now, in the context of uh, the prophet Isaiah, the 8th century before Christ, that would be the 700s before Christ, You see, the immediately preceding chapter 10 speaks of the judgment which was going to befall the unfaithful Israelites at the hand of the Assyrians, and then the judgment of God which would fall upon the wicked Assyrians. Total judgment coming. Isaiah 11 comes in the context against that backdrop of devastation under God's judgment. That's the only way to understand verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who was Jesse? Well, Jesse was David's father. David, the shepherd boy, who slew Goliath, who became the king of Israel, and from whose lineage the Messiah was promised to come. But under God's judgment, Israel, referred to here as Jesse, David's father, representing the entire nation, and specifically that line from which the Messiah would come, it's it's pictured as a stump, the stump of Jesse. Now, picture a stump in your mind. I'm sorry that we had to, but we had to cut down these these beautiful old oak trees outside uh, our sanctuary. A stump is a sad sight. You remember what those trees looked like? And then just ugly and sad. 
When you're looking at a stump, you are looking at death. How much hope does a stump have? In and of itself, a stump is lifeless and hopeless. But, Isaiah prophesied, God promised that out of this lifeless and hopeless condition, the Messiah would come forth. Uh, that could come about only by divine action. There shall come forth a shoot, a new green sprig from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall, from his roots shall bear fruit. You see, this is the prophecy of the coming Messiah, that Messiah who was promised it back in the Garden of Eden, who would be fully anointed by the Spirit of God to destroy the devil. And the attributes and the empowerment of the Spirit, which would, would characterize the Messiah, the Christ, are enumerated here. Wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He is described as one who will judge according to the truth as it really is and re render decisions, render decisions of judgment with righteousness and equity when he hears the plea of the poor and the meek. In other words... His favor cannot be bought or bribed. And the poor and the rich and the meek and the mighty are all equal in His sight. Now, in previous year's sermons on this passage, I've spent more time showing how these Spirit-empowered attributes were all present, they were evident, and they were in operation in Jesus' earthly ministry. So, you know... God's people were waiting from the time of Adam for the Messiah to come. And, and prophecies of the Messiah occurred throughout ancient Israel's history. Here we have one of them in Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus. And then in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of woman. There's a very real sense in which this prophecy of Isaiah 11 was definitely fulfilled in the earthly ministry of Jesus. There's a partial fulfillment in Jesus' earthly ministry. We can read the Gospels, and we can see it in Jesus' life, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, and might, etc., and etc. And likewise, there's a sense in which this prophecy has continued to be fulfilled throughout history from the time of Christ's ascension into heaven, until today, there is an ongoing fulfillment of this prophecy. It continues to be fulfilled as Christ's word continues to be proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ builds up his church in every nation. We ought to pause for just a moment and just, just think about what this sad and troubled world would be if Christ had never come. Can you imagine this sad and troubled world if it had never been influenced by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Hell on earth. Absolute hell on earth. But by the power of the Spirit, through the preaching of the Word, Christ is exercising His kingship, His rule and reign. Now, we don't see it completely. No. It's not completely finished, but we, we must understand 
that Christ is on the throne. He is ruling. He is reigning. He is building His church in every nation. And we may even speak of the poetic vision of the peaceable kingdom. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and etc. As being at least partially, and I'm saying partially, fulfilled in the present. When we think of the ways in which the gospel of Jesus Christ brings peace among people who would be natural enemies of one another. Here's a little side note. Google up the peaceable kingdom. And it's going to draw up pictures of the painting by Edward Hicks. And you're going to look and you're going to see the leopard, and, and, and the goat and the wolf and the lamb. That's where your eye is going to go. But over here in this corner, in little bitty figures, little bitty figures, there's a scene of people who look like um, American colonists and Native Americans. It's a depiction of William Penn's treaty with the Native Americans. You see, Edward Hicks got it, that the peaceable kingdom of Christ begins to take its effect on earth in real space and time in this world. And, and William Penn, uh, 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 yes, William Penn, in his peace treaty with the Native Americans, was, was giving expression to that. People who would naturally be enemies one of another were brought together to live in peace. That's just one little illustration. We can go on and on. Peace and reconciliation between individuals who are estranged from one another. Do you know anybody who is estranged from someone near to them? Where's the answer? Where's the answer? It's on the cross of Christ who is our peace. And the forgiveness we receive from Him, we extend to the one who has offended us. Well, the church of Jesus Christ, that means Covenant Presbyterian, EPC, as a local congregation, we as a community of His kingdom... I hope we would think of ourselves that way. An outpost of His kingdom. His kingdom in heaven. He establishes an outpost, a little colony. So that His kingdom might spread. We are to live as the peaceable kingdom of Christ with one another, and, and therefore bear witness to the world. Christ is risen from the dead and is ruling and reigning over us as our King of peace. Well, the prophecy of Isaiah 11, therefore, it's been partially fulfilled in the past in the life and ministry of Jesus. It is partially fulfilled in the present by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in, in the life of the church. But our theme today is hope in waiting, and that has to do with the future. The vision of the peaceable kingdom, ultimately, is a vision of the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ.
in the new heavens and the new earth which he shall bring when he comes again in his second advent, his advent of glory and power. He shall come again to judge the living and the dead. And all things will be made new. And this creation will be redeemed and restored. And those who have loved Him and humbled themselves beneath His grace and mercy shall be received into His everlasting kingdom. But all those who have refused to receive Him will be banished into the outer darkness and everlasting fire. And all of creation will at last be set free from the curse of sin and death. That old serpent will be ultimately, absolutely, and completely destroyed and will molest God's creation no more. Evil will be no more. Evil desires will have no place in Christ's new Creation, the new creation, the restored Eden will be even more marvelous and beautiful than we can imagine, brothers and sisters. That is the point of this prophecy. In previous sermons, you've heard me ask the question, now how should we interpret verses 6 through 8? Shall we interpret them literally or figuratively? When it says that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and that the cow and the bear shall graze and that the lion shall eat straw like the ox, well, shall we interpret those verses literally or figuratively? Well, why not? Yes. Why not? And, and that's the point of the passage. The, the, the point of these verses is not to try to figure it out and how could that be. Uh, 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 uh. The point of this prophecy is to stretch our imagination beyond the breaking point. So if it's impossible for you to imagine a lion eating straw like the ox and a wolf dwelling with a lamb, well, that's, that is precisely the point. What is promised to us, and that means guaranteed to us, is something which, which cannot be expressed in human words or even human concepts. It's beyond all our imagining. And that's why the Scripture says... In fact, this is a verse which comes from Isaiah. It's quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians. What no eye has seen. Lion eating straw like an ox. You ever seen that? What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. Have you ever imagined a wolf dwelling with a lion? What, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. This is what God has prepared for those who love Him. 
That's the guaranteed future reality. A new creation in which all fear is gone. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. No more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow. You see, we hear this echoed in the Revelation. No more death. In the words of J.R.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings, a world in which everything sad, everything sad, has become untrue. It is the hope of glory for which we are waiting in hope. Brothers and sisters, it is our hope. It is not our wish. It is not a preferred possibility. It is a guaranteed future reality. Because the promised Savior of the world has come in His first advent in human flesh and blood, in humility, in meekness. And in his own body has borne the sins of the world and the curse of Adam. You remember that crown he wore? It was a crown of thorns. Adam's curse. The whole weight of God's wrath and judgment upon sin fell on him. And if your heart is wed to him by faith, you have been delivered from all your sins and all your fears. Christ became a curse on our behalf in order to reverse the curse for us. He comes to make His blessings flow far, far as, far as the curse is found. And his resurrection proves that he has indeed crushed the serpent's head. He is the promised Savior, the victorious King. And his kingdom is a kingdom of everlasting peace and righteousness and joy. Now, when you, when you read the vision of the peaceable kingdom, it's important um, for us also to connect it to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, first of all in chapter 5, in which he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that is, we have a right standing with God on the basis of Christ's obedience for us and on our behalf, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peaceable kingdom is a picture 
of that. And through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is our guaranteed future reality. This is joy to the world. This is our comfort and joy. And then again, Romans chapter 8, which speaks of this renewal of the whole creation, including the redemption of our bodies, I believe, in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And so Paul writes by the Spirit in Romans 8.18, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is our hope, and we can be sure of it through our faith in Jesus Christ, now brothers and sisters of Covenant Presbyterian Church. There are members of our congregation who are suffering. You know who they are. Suffering physically, suffering terminally, Suffering in grief. We all are terminal. It's just that we like to live oblivious to that fact. There are those in our congregation who are very aware of it. For whom the hope of glory and life everlasting in the peaceable kingdom may be very near. O tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. O tidings of comfort and joy. The hope of glory and this hope does not disappoint because through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been born again into a living hope. Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Advent is a season of waiting. Our whole life on earth is a season of waiting, waiting in hope. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, there is none like you. And we thank you for the glorious gospel of our Savior who loved us and gave himself up for us that we might not perish but have everlasting life. Grant us this grace to live by faith in this hope through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In response... To the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us affirm our faith, the faith of the one church of Jesus Christ throughout history and throughout the world. So we say together the Nicene Creed.
which is a creed which was written in order to articulate and to defend the doctrinal truth of the divine nature of Jesus Christ united with a truly human nature. Sometimes referred to, therefore, as the Christmas Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things and invisible, and one the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten. Who's 